Welcome, curious minds, to the eLongevity Podcast, the intersection of knowledge and imagination. I'm your host, Codename Lou, and today we're diving deep into the realm of design with our special guest, Fanam Bagley, a visionary architect and designer. Fanam's remarkable work encompasses everything from tech gadgets to futuristic interiors. Get ready to challenge your understanding of design and explore the mind of this extraordinary artist. Welcome everybody to the eLongevity Podcast. This is your host, Codename Lou. We really appreciate you being here and a supporter of Methuselah Foundation and all of our listeners as well too. We have an incredible guest with us tonight. But before we introduce her, we always have to introduce our lovely co-host, Britannia00. Hello, uh, Britannia00. Um, I have 17 years of healthcare experience on the commercial side, um, and I have been a Dagalon holder since May of 2021. Thank you so much for always being here, being a great support. <laughs> and uh, now to introduce our special guest. We have an incredible guest, like we said before, a founding partner and creative director of nonfiction, a TED speaker, industrial designer, futurist, aerospace architect, Phnom Bagley. Welcome to the show, Phnom. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I should call you Codename Lou and uh, Britannia00, right? These are really cool <laughs> names. Yeah. yeah, we got to keep aliases <laughs> yep. um, part of our origin story. <laughs> but please tell us about your name. Where does your name come from? And just tell us about yourself. Sure. Um, so my first name is uh, a shorter version of my Vietnamese name. Uh, and then my last name is my husband's name, who's, uh, who's American. But I was actually born and raised in France. Um, which is mm. a little bit of where my accent is from, I guess. Although I've only met one person my entire life who has actually figured out where my accent actually is from, uh, because I learned to speak English when I lived in Denmark. Uh, so yeah, I'm a mix of many different places and now I am based in San Francisco, California. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. So. How did you get into, or what's your origin story for how you got into design, aerospace, and being a creative in that space and in science? So it all started when I was, I don't know, five, six, seven. Um, I started seeing things on TV that had, you know, something to do with space exploration, like space shuttles and things like that. And, uh, and I wanted to do that. And also, you know, being at home and looking up at the sky uh, I realized pretty early on that uh, there was a perspective to the night sky, that the things that seemed to be next to each other were actually not, right? Uh, certain things are closer to, to, to our sun and some things are you know, billions and billions of um, uh, light years away. So, um, so I was interested in, in that and I found it so incredibly interesting and uh, it also helped me escape Right, some some people when they're kids they like to escape in their imaginations, and I like to escape in uh, the grand grandeur of uh, of the night sky. So so that's that's a passion that uh, has has been with me since then. And then after that, I became very interested in physics. So I went to high school in France and really studied a lot of that, and uh, realized one day that I actually don't like research. Uh, and so, uh, I started, um, you know, studying design, thinking that design would be the perfect match, uh, between the technical and the imaginative. 
And so I did very well in that and started a career in this. And um, sometime down the line, I got invited to study what's called space architecture uh, at the University of Houston, and that was uh, in 2005. So I moved to Houston a week before Hurricane Katrina. Um, that was, you know, my first week in the U.S. Um, that oh was my goodness! <laughs> wow, that was interesting to say the least. And uh, and then kept at it, um, really studying and practicing how to best design space environments for astronauts. And now that the commercial space industry is, you know, on its way to being quite developed, uh, there's more than ever a need for design, for good architecture, for good integration of technology, and for support that goes beyond, um, you know, sending professional astronauts up in space. Now, we're thinking about sending um, you know, people like you and me, people who will not spend 10 years training um, in these extreme environments, people who are either tourists or people who are going up there uh, for work. Well, I, I got to tell you something I appreciate that I don't have to <laughs> practice or train in extreme environments for the prospect of being able to go in space now. I think that's pretty cool. And I also appreciate you sharing uh, your point of view, your perspective that you had as a child, and it probably sparked this lifelong career path, which I think is also a pretty noteworthy. Um, here's a question for you. What do you think is the benefit of sending, you know, regular people like you and myself, or not you, but me, what do you think is the benefit of, of sending people like me to space, those who are not, you know, classically or formally trained? Um, every once in a while, I meet in this uh, Zoom call uh, where Frank White is at, at the center of the conversation. And he's the author of um, The Overview Effect, which I believe was first uh, uh, published about 30 years ago. And basically he had interviewed many astronauts throughout the decades and realized that they all experienced something quite similar, is that once they elevate them themselves in space and saw the Earth and saw this like r blue marble floating in the nothingness of, of the universe, the, the astronaut realized that this planet was quite fragile. And then that, you know, a lot of these astronauts' missions when they came back to Earth was to do everything in their power to protect, protect that planet. And so that's called the overview effect. So that's one of the things I really look forward to when more and more people attain that limit um, that, that exists today. And, uh, and, and, and that can be quite beautiful. One of the things that I've been talking about is what if every head of state um, you know, was sent to space and had to experience the overview effect? What, what would the world look like? Would we you know, start wars based on you know, megalomaniac behaviors or, or, or do we, would we have like more compassionate leaders um, in this world? So that's number one. Number two, um, you know, when we send people up in space, this will have implications on innovation, right? Because going to space is an extreme environment that's so harsh that we cannot just translate what we have on Earth up in, in this environment. We have to really design specifically for microgravity, for isolation, for radiation, for you know different ways of uh, sleeping and, and, and eating and working that um, that's going to help us really innovate a lot in these, in these fields. And then one thing that happens is, you know, once you innovate up there, you can actually 
advance uh, what's going on on this planet and offering people more options um, for for the different you know ailments that they might have and uh, perhaps increase um, efficiency in uh, in in all the ways that that we work and do things. So as a company, nonfiction really focuses on on that bridge between what's going on on Earth and what's going on in space, right? So we develop a lot of products and wearables and brain implants that benefits humans and you know benefits uh, the environment as much as we can, and we want to translate all of that to space. And then we create space environments for all of these people who work and live up there, and really. You know, with, with the very limited resources that we have in space, that allows us to think about solutions that serve more people on Earth. Because many people on this planet live uh, without electricity, without the internet, without being connected, without security. So how do we take space and emphasize that opportunity uh, for all of us here? And Phnom, speaking of your company, Nonfiction, there's so many different projects, right? And which one, ex which two excites you the most, right? You've got the sleep <laughs> and the cities and the healthcare, um, you know, the food and also the education exploration. Um, can you speak of two that really excite you right now in this moment? And I know all of them are exciting, but which two? Yeah, I mean, it's like choosing your favorite child, right? Yeah. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's all about uh, thinking of it as a system. To me, all of our projects, even though they seem very disconnected, actually belong to the same world, right? Everybody sleeps, everybody eats, everybody, um, you know, uh, needs uh, mental health support or, or things like that. So, 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 so they're all important in that way. But um, I, I would say, you know, a couple that are very exciting right now is uh, one of them is, uh, is Somni, which is uh, a wearable that we've developed with a company uh, called STEM Science, and uh, they're somewhat affiliated with UC Berkeley. And, uh, and basically, that company has discovered that there's a very specific pattern that uh, the brain produces about 15 minutes before sleep. Um, and so what they do is that they apply that pattern of brain waves to your prefrontal cortex, and then what happens after that is that your brain knows what to do the rest of the night, right? It's like the analogy that was given was it's like pushing a child on a, on a swing and just the, the swing continues to, to go. Um, so this product kind of does that. And so at first it sounded like complete science fiction, which is you know the first reason why we're interested. But then one of our employees, who's um, a woman of a certain age, uh, has been suffering from uh, insomnia her entire life, basically, uh, became one of the beta testers. And um, she could not sleep more than you know, three, four hours at a time. She woke up in the middle of the night every night and um, you know, could see it on her face the next day. But after using this product for two nights, she was able to experience uh, seven and a half, eight hours of sleep. And not only that, she experienced an hour and a half REM sleep, an hour and a half deep sleep, which is exceptional sleep. So again, you know, uh, taking uh, that idea of what if every world leader had a good night's sleep every single night, what would the world look like? Um, these are the kinds of thinking that, 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 that we have in the back of our mind every time we put a product out there. What kind of big impact 
can have on the world and uh, and the influences that that that, that leaders have uh, out, out in this world. And so, with this device, um, does it help patients go into that hypnagogia sleep faster, or that, or do you just go straight into like what state of sleep do you go into? I'm just curious because usually there are different stages, right? And stage one, I think, is hypnagogia. Or like the theta, I, I could be completely wrong, right? Like you're tapping in the, the, theta, the theta waves. I'm just. Yeah. Um, so the way the clients described it to us, it, it's called N1. So um, there, there are four stages of uh, within a phase of sleep. So N1, N2, N3, and deep sleep. So you have these four. Okay. And then throughout a good night's sleep, you go through these phases four to five times. Right. Um, so I couldn't tell you uh, the scientific word for these uh, phases, mm -hmm. but uh, but yeah, I'm sure it can be found somewhere. Okay. <laughs> Very cool. That is that is super cool. I think that having wearables and things that people in the, on the market can actually benefit from, especially with something that's so elusive as sleep, I think it's, it's really cool that you're designing for those individuals, which, you know, in actuality, maybe the majority of people, I don't know if majority of people are actually getting good rest. Um, yeah. As I was as I was researching your 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 work and your your body of work, I kept I kept coming across this phrase. It says the future of everything. I kept seeing that the future of everything, the future. Of, so how do you approach designing the future of everything, and what does that phrase truly mean to you? I think it's connected to the fact that I believe that everything is connected. Um, as I mentioned earlier, if you take care of your sleep, you take care of your mental health, of your relationships, of the way you eat, of the way you uh, work, um, and, and of, the, of the way you relate to others. So, uh, you know, by working in so many different industries from, um, you know, mental health and physical health and robotics and transportation and aerospace, we're starting to see connections that most people, um, you know, who work in silos wouldn't see. Uh, I think one of the big differences between the 20th and the 21st century's jobs is that we were taught to work in silos, and what's really effective out there is the interconnectedness of disciplines. Uh, design, I like to, tell, to say that design by itself is, is rather useless uh, because design is a connector. So what is it connecting? Is it connecting a technology to a human? Is it connecting a science to a uh, business opportunity? Is it connecting art to a behavior? Uh, so, so that's really where the magic of design comes in. And, uh, and, and yeah, the future of everything is what different aspects of life can we make better to make the whole of humanity and the whole of this planet better altogether. Yeah, I really like that. And I, I love, and I'm, that's going to be my takeaway, what you said, that design really is a connector. It reminds you of like colors, for example, you put different things together, you blend them, and it becomes something new. And I appreciate that you uh, approach design that same way. So let's transition into something else, into your TED Talk. You know, you had a TED Talk recently. What was that like? Was that nerve-wracking for you? Tell us about that experience. <laughs> it was terrifying, uh, first and foremost. <laughs> um, I mean, there's a lot of pressure, right? Um, so um, earlier, Britannia uh, Zero Zero uh, call, um, asked me for, for two projects that are exciting. So I'm going to talk about the second project. So it was part of a, um, a competition put together by NASA, the Canadian Space Agency, and Methuselah Foundation. 
And so basically the challenge was to figure out what and how we're going to feed astronauts who are going on the deep space mission, like, like going to Mars, for example. So going to Mars is going to last between two and a half and three years uh, round trip. It's about 300 million miles away, one way. And during this time, you know, uh, we'll have to figure out the rocketry and, you know, the space module system and the life support systems. All that is going to be figured out. But um, unfortunately, one of the big issues that we don't have a solution for today is food. And a lot of people don't don't think it's it's that big of a deal, right? Uh, there there are plenty of sci-fi um, movies that show you different forms of food or or that, that can be offered the astronauts. But you also have to think that food is related to mental health and, and physical health. And so what kind of food and variety of it is going to be suitable for people who are literally risking their lives for history, right? Um, and so the, based on that premise, you know, my team and I entered the competition and uh, we created what's called the Space Culinary Lab. And it's, it's nothing revolutionary in the sense that we're not creating new food. What we're doing is that we are taking different ways of creating uh, new ingredients and uh, mixing them together in a way that's pleasurable, right? The pleasure of food, of rituals, of culture, of desires, that's what, what was at the, at the center of, uh, of the way we designed this, this whole system. And so the TED Talk was really talking about the, the, the path we went through, where we ended up, and, uh, and, and the different solutions that we came up with. And just to give you a very high level you know, view of what it was, we, we had a micro, uh, bioreactor for microalgae that uh, you know, grew micro, uh, fresh microalgae, which has been shown in some papers that it might be useful for uh, radiation protection. We also have an aeroponic system that uh, offers fresh uh, greens. Um, so when you, when you interview astronauts that, you know, come back from long missions aboard the ISS, for example, one of the things they miss the most is the crunch of a salad. So that's really what we wanted to offer them. We also have a space barbecue, which uh, <laughs> has become what we're well known for. And uh, the fun part is about the barbecue is that, as you know, real barbecue is done with open fire, but open fire is frowned upon in space. So we're actually using lasers to create artificial grill marks on top of your protein. So, uh, so yeah, lots of like solutions like this that are fun, but also bring a sense of agency to these astronauts that are that are on the line, right? Um, you know, you you know, a lot of people think about. Um, sustenance and, and uh, nutrition and, and things like that is, is very important in food, of course, but then every once in a while, you and I and everybody else, we need some junk food. We need some pleasure food. We need some things that just bring us the comfort that we need and, uh, whenever we need it. I appreciate that as well. Um, I know that you know many astronauts and space travelers are going to really thank you for their their milky ways and their snickers bars that they can eat while up there while while traveling and, and exploring um and i i think that it's really just cool that you even think about that it, it really is true that food is a connector food connects us to our experiences back home and if we're traveling through space we definitely will feel more comfortable more able to to handle the travel traveling all these millions of miles uh, if we have things that remind us of back home so let's talk about uh, food sustainability. You know, there's, there's these new methods of, of sustaining and creating food for travel. 
um, what do you think the impact is going to be on the earth as you design or help when it comes to designing food that is sustainable but that you can really use in space travel? What do you think the impact will be here? So I'm going to give you an example of the aeroponic system. Uh, so aeroponic is, is a subset of, of hydroponics that uses a lot less water and basically sprays nutrients directly on the roots of a plant. What's been uh, shown is that aeroponics on Earth and in space uh, is able to grow a wide variety of food. I mean, um, after doing some research, we found that you can grow potatoes and, and corn and strawberries and you know different types of leafy greens, which you know can 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 offer a very diverse diet, and all of that done with a very very little amount of, of water. And so, uh, if we're able to optimize the system and make it attainable uh, for, for different types of you know, places all over the world to, 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 to have access to, we, we, can, we can think of a future where perhaps um, you know, uh, food deserts in the middle of cities or places in very remote uh, rural areas in, on different continents can actually have access to, to fresh food. Fresh food is full of macronutrients, which kind of goes against a lot of what's being developed right now when it comes to, to food. You know, there's a lot of you know protein made from air or 3D printed, uh, you know, uh, chicken or or things like that, which is a lot of reconstituted uh, uh, food that's been reconstituted. I can't say that word. <laughs> um, reconstituted. No, we understand. Yes. <laughs> And um, there's a lot of like micronutrients put together, but it's not, it, it doesn't equate to the same thing, right? Things in nature grow together. There's a certain percentage of fat, there's a certain percentage of protein and, and, and sugar that are put together that the body can actually absorb uh, in, in a better way. So, so really giving access to fresh food, nutritious food, food that you see grow, food that you see benefit your health directly uh, that's going to be uh, so incredibly important for a lot of people to have access to. And I'm particularly uh, interested in, in seeing what it does to refugees. Uh, uh, as we know, a lot of people are being displaced uh, year after year on this planet for whatever reasons. There's climate change, some megalomaniac at, on top of a country. Uh, but uh, a lot of people don't really think about what happens to the microbiome when they go from one place to another, when they, um, um, you know, stress on top of isolation, on top of, you know, like losing loved ones along the way, on top of uh, eating food that's so foreign to them. Uh, that actually has an impact on people's health, uh, physical health and mental health. So is there a way to offer these refugees, the food that they're used to with that nourishes the microbiome that they grew up with um, by using the technologies that we develop in space. I think that's, that, that is an absolute possibility. And so, Sam, I'd like to transition into the cities, right? So we're speaking of, you know, growing food, food source, you know, in outer space. And then we also hit on food source here on the planet, but I also want to talk a little bit about your cities that you've, that nonfiction um, is working on different projects. Like you have the Music City um, in Nashville. Um, so if you can share with us a little bit about that. 
Yeah, so really thinking about what transportation system is adequate for a city that has so much history and so much culture, right? A lot of the times when I look at transportation systems like buses and trains and, and, and train stations, it always feels like it's been put on top of a city um, without any regard for the people who live there or uh, the, the, the history or the culture. And uh, we wanted to create something that was quintessentially uh, centered on Nashville, right? Uh, which is um, a city that's well known for, for live music and, and a lot of things like that. So, so yeah, so we, we started studying, you know, what kind of nature was uh, growing there, what kind of sounds were so incredibly unique to the city, what kind of architecture kind of mixed the history of the past and the uh, hope of the future. And I merged all of that with technology that would turn the city of Nashville into a smart city. What does that mean when the bus knows when I'm waiting for it? What does that mean when, um, you know, what I'm waiting uh, I could learn a little bit more about the city or the place I'm standing at. So, so really, that that was a project of 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 merging all the possibilities of a more human city through technology. Because a lot of the times when people talk about technology, they think that it takes us away from the connections that we have, from the the meaning behind uh, the use of a material or, or, or the history of a place. But there is a proper way of doing it that actually connects us even more. Um, I just I have a question as a designer. Uh, I'm not a designer, but what advice would you give you know aspiring designers to not just make things that are cool, but to have a positive impact on humanity and the environment as, as you do? I think there's a simple question that you can ask yourself every time a client comes to you or an idea comes up in your head is why? Why am I doing this? Why should it exist? Um, and if you can't really answer that question with anything else, then, you know, oh, it's going to be I'm going to be make great be making great money with it. Uh, that's 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 not enough. We live in a world where that's not enough, right? And um, and I'm actually a big proponent of uh, for profit for impact. Uh, I think there's an equation that is possible from a business perspective that says that why why do we have to you know have groups that work for free or or for cheap that are taken advantage of in order to benefit others. Like, I think there's a way to actually um, uh, benefit everyone that is involved and, and turn the, 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 the business model into something that's, uh, that, that makes sense, right? Uh, a nonprofit organization or a company is, is, has to be profitable, right? Um, above all, otherwise it's not an organization, it's just a bad idea. Uh, so, um, <laughs> so, so you, you take that and you figure out what needs to be put in place for the end goal to be achieved, but for the people who make that end goal possible to not be burnt out, right? So, so that's the kind of responsibility that as a business owner, I always have in the back of my head, um, not only as a design studio, but also feeling responsible for my clients. My clients are serving a group of users that have expectations of what their product would do. So, so as a designer, I have to think about what those expectations are and exceed them as much as possible. Beautiful. 
I appreciate that that response. Um, I wanted to know how close do you think we are to the future that you envision, the future where you know your your neural work, your 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 aerospace designs, all those things are actually being used, and and in our community, I can go to space as a, as a tourist. How how close do you think we are to the future that you that you're creating, not just envisioning? Yeah, um, so the reason why we call that company nonfiction is because we want all of our work to become real. And uh, most products that you see on our, on our website are actually things you can buy, um, which surprises a lot of people. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, they, these are real products. And when it comes to like long-term um, you know, vision of the future of humans in space, uh, we're actually currently working with uh, companies that can make that real. Some of the projects that we had on our on our website were more speculative in the sense that they were our ideas of what the future of space should be. And we created them for the sole purpose of attracting clients who were going to take those ideas and make them real. And this has worked for us. So uh, because, you know, when you work with clients as a consultancy, it's very common for clients to come to you and say, hey, do you have experience in this very specific industry or subset of this industry and we can't come to them and say oh no we've never done it but when we've done uh, internal projects and really figured out what what were the right questions to ask and what were the right answers to give um, that actually gave us uh, a leg up uh, compared to anybody else who had never really thought about that question Uh, one of the projects that we have out there that that we did for that was um, called around the moon and it came from an observation. I was just staring at a bunch of pictures of astronauts on the moon and realized everything was grayscale. And I'm like, I didn't grow up with grayscale life, right? Like, I'm, I'm too young to even have grown up with a TV that was black and white. So everything was color. Everything was uh, had trees and skies and colored walls and materials and texture. And so my expectation when we go to the moon is that we have the same thing up there. So how do you integrate colors and textures and physical uh, experiences that reminisce uh, or remind us of, of, of the, uh, the, the, the experiences that we have on Earth? And because there are so many things that are foreign to us in outer space. So as many, in many ways, uh, as many ways as we can, we'd like to bring a lot of comfort in the familiarity of the experience that we have here. Phnom, you have worked on so many successful projects. And in this particular space, this area, there aren't a lot of women. And so what has it been like being a woman in this area? What challenges have you had or endured? What do you hope for the future of other women who want to enter this area? Uh, it's funny because uh, I get asked this question once in a while, but it's, it's not really something I think about. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't even think there are many men who do what I do. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I just like, I'm someone with ideas and I work with a team mm-hmm. who is like exceptional and I just go. Um, I, you know, I, and of course, you know, every once in a while there's a, a naysayer, but that's their problem. That's not mine. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually been a, a great filter of, 
of of people I actually don't want to work with when when you know people uh, are uncomfortable with the idea of working with the designer or working with a woman. Um, but but yeah, it's just it's just something that does not really take space in my brain. I'm more interested in the future. I'm more interested in serving, you know, this humanity and this planet, and um, and that's a lot of stuff already. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, what an awesome response! Mm -hmm. What an awesome response! I, I so just for the the benefit of our listeners, they can't see, you know, your background. But uh, your background is very colorful, very aesthetically pleasing. Uh, I see all these little uh, um, things inside of uh, picture frames. Can you tell us the room that you're in, what it what it represents, and and what's behind you? Yes. Um, so we're currently recording in uh, the first on the first floor of Nonfiction's uh, headquarters, which are in uh, San Francisco. We're actually a block away from Twitter. Um, if, if you know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and what's behind me and all around me is a material library. So one of our partners is Material Connection, which is a uh, material library and material science company based in New York. And we partnered up, uh, I believe, like about three years ago. And they provide us with this incredible array of materials. I mean, here we have everything between pineapple leather, uh, carbon nanotubes, different types of crazy cements and recycled materials. And so these are pretty incredible to be around when you're looking for inspiration uh, and also thinking about the sustainable aspect of the work that we do, right? Where do the materials come from? How much process have they gone through before they came into our hands? And how are they going to age? So really thinking about all the properties of each materials and how we integrate them into our Earth architecture, our space architecture, our physical products, our wearables, that enriches a lot the work that we do. Because a classic industrial designers, uh, you know, in their career will probably use about 15 materials to apply to everything, right? Uh, from like different types of plastics or, or, or films or metals. Uh, that's, that's very limited. And that's due to the fact that a lot of these materials are virgin with uh, under, uh, properties that are understood and they're very low cost. But because we work in such extreme um, kind of like industries like aerospace, uh, we actually have the luxury of making certain uh, choices that are a little bit more risky. And of course, there are other challenges when you work in aerospace, right? You can't use any material that's flammable, for example. Um, so we have to be aware of that. And there are a long line of engineers who will stop us before we even you know, make uh, creative decisions. But, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing about being a designer. You get to play with a lot of things, and then you get to come back to reality and then play again. And really, that back and forth is what's so magical about our job. Mm, wow. Thank you so much for that. I have another question, but before that, just want to commend you for trying to stay within the 17 rules of sustainability. Really commendable that you try to design with that in mind. Uh, but just one more question for you. What do you want our listeners to walk away with after this interview, this podcast? What do you think is your final message to those who are listening to you today? 
I think I'd like to speak in opposition to a lot of the mood that I'm hearing today, right? A lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of, um, you know, I guess fear towards AI and what's coming up. Uh, I think the, the human brain goes to the extreme bad very easily. I don't know, there's probably some dopamine involved. Uh, but, um, but I'm a hopeless, hopeful person, right? Uh, and I think that has a lot to do with um, the job that I have. Because the job that I have gives me the hope that there are solutions for everything. You know, every time I meet someone who's depressed or suicidal or something like that, I actually know people who can help them or are developing uh, technologies for them. Every time I, I see someone who doesn't have access to clean clothes or, or fresh food, I know people who can develop something for them as well. And so I see a solution to every problem, um, and, and it's a privilege to have a hand in all of those solutions. And I truly believe that everybody has that power as well, right? You may not think that you're good at something or creative or you know, productive or anything. You know, all of this can be learned and, uh, and you just have to like place yourself in the right place at the right time to, um, to truly believe that one day you can have a say in, uh, in kind of like creating that story of hope for yourself and for others. Wow, thank you, Phnom. And as we wrap up, um, so we're gonna ask you our two questions that we ask all of our guests. Um, what are you currently currently reading right now? So I just uh, went to a conference called Humans to Mars Summit in DC, and I met an author there uh, named Matthew Schindel, and he wrote a book called um, uh, For the Love of Mars. And so that's what I'm reading right now. Um, yeah, it's, it's actually a pretty quick read. Uh, Math, Matthew Schindel is a historian uh, at the Smithsonian. And so basically he is recounting uh, humanity's relationship to Mars, the planet, since the Babylonians. And uh, it's super interesting. Wow, okay. And second question uh, is favorite music album of all time. <laughs> Of all time, wow, uh, okay. Um, um, I would say Sigur uh first album, the first one they came up with. I mean, I can play this 100 years from now and still feel the same chills. Okay. <laughs> well, the, the hope is that we can have this conversation 100 years from now and be able yeah. to, to experience it as well. We, we care so much about health span, lifespan, um, and sustainability. And the work that you're doing, the Methuselah Foundation, we absolutely appreciate. And thank you. We thank you for spending the time with the Elongevity you know, podcast. We know that you are definitely a busy, a busy individual, but we applaud your work. We want to support your work. And um, if we want to support, if our, if our listeners want to do more, where can we find information about you? Where can we look? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn and on Twitter. Uh, so is my company. Um, and uh, our company Instagram, uh, nonfiction.design, uh, has all of our videos. Um, you know, we actually produce our own uh, educational videos called Future Future. Um, if you type in nonfiction.design on YouTube, you'll find it. And basically, it's me and my partner, Mardis, uh, talking about design and the future of everything from the perspective of creative directors. So uh, all for free. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
Well, this is Britannia Zero Zero, codenamed Lou, the Methuselah Foundation, and Phnom Bagley. We really appreciate your work and for being here tonight. This is the Elongevity Podcast, and good night.